0: Hello, and welcome to this new Perspectives on Policy podcast series from Elephant Policy Centre. I'm Christopher Crompton, and during the course of these podcasts, I'll be diving into some of the biggest issues affecting the people of Britain. I'll be looking at where and why problems have arisen, and to ask what we should expect our government to do about it, as well as what we might do ourselves. A quick introduction about Elephant Policy Centre. We don't fit well into conventional categories as an organisation, In part we're a think tank, outlining policy options, although rather than making proposals to further the agenda of a particular political ideology, we strive to be multi-partisan in presenting a spectrum of perspectives and potential options. Our research draws from a range of sources including academia, public opinion, the media, governments and other think tanks, and we're interested in historical developments and international examples to build a fuller context and broaden the net of ideas for consideration. We recognize the prevalence of misinformation and deceptive spin in political discourse. So we also want to get to the facts and play our part in busting unhelpful myths. But most importantly of all, we're not just looking to be a top-down organization that tells people what's what. We don't have all the answers. In filling in the details of policy context and laying out some of the options on the table, We want to be a springboard, a catalyst. We want to provide some of the tools and encouragement for more people to engage more meaningfully in politics, to have their questions answered, and to share in building a practical vision for a better country for us all. However estranged from normal life the political elite can sometimes feel, we, the people, do have a say, and when we speak up in sufficient numbers, politicians must listen. But first, we have to cut through the propaganda and political tribalism to be clear about what's going on, what's in our collective interests, and which policies should prove a help and not a hindrance. Elephant Policy Centre's independent work, including these podcasts, have been facilitated from the outset by the support of entrepreneur and philanthropist Gordon Stiles, and I'm grateful to him for backing our vision to enliven and empower the democratic process in Britain. The first series centres on the topic of housing, beginning with the question, is there a housing crisis in Britain? We're all well aware that house prices have shot up in recent decades. In the 40 years between 1997 and 2017, the cost of the average UK house more than doubled in real terms. That's a faster growth rate than seen in any other OECD country over that period. It wasn't a smooth trend, House prices in Britain have been all over the place, showing remarkable volatility by international standards. Price swings in the UK across the real estate cycle between the upswing of the 1980s and the downturn of the 90s were larger than those in the single most volatile metropolitan area in the US. Between 1980 and 90, prices rose by 50% on average, only to plummet by a similar amount by 1995. Another, bigger boom took place from 1995 until the beginnings of the financial crisis in 2007, with the real price of the average house rising by almost 250%, two and a half times. In the wake of the crisis, those average prices fell to a low of £187,000 in 2013, although that was still almost double the 1995 figure. Of course, we expect to see some inflation, we expect that to some extent prices are going to go up over time. Rising prices in and of themselves don't necessarily cause a problem in terms of affordability if they represent broader booms in the economy that translate into higher incomes. But while real wage growth has seldom risen above 5% a year in recent history, and at times in the last decade has been negative, i.e. people earn less when accounting for inflation than they did the previous year, house prices have often changed at a much higher rate. Despite the ups and downs in house price trends relative to wage growth, it's clear that overall the long-term average of increasing house prices in real terms has meant that the average house has become more expensive for the average household to afford. This is obvious if we look at mortgage terms. Mortgages traditionally have been taken out on a 25-year term, but it now takes almost that long to even save the deposit. Think Tank, the Resolution Foundation, estimates that given cost increases, the availability of credit and the return on savings, it takes 20 years for a low to middle income household to save a first time buyer deposit. That's up from three years in 1998. In 2017, the average full-time worker in England and Wales could expect to pay around 7.8 times what they earn a year from working to buy a home. Of course, there's a lot of regional variation in affordability, The Office for National Statistics reported that as a factor of average workplace-based annual earnings, average house prices range from 2.7 times earnings in Copeland, in the northwest of England, to 40.7 times earnings in the district of Kensington and Chelsea in London. These ratios are all very well, but what does that mean in terms of affordability? Well, over 70% of renters have less than £30,000 of gross household income. Considering that a mortgage lender typically provides a mortgage to the value of just under four times the mortgage's salary, those 70% of rental households could only borrow up to a maximum of around £100,000, much less than the cost of the average first-time buyer's home, which is over £175,000. The Equality Trust reported in 2016 that 86% of working-age households that are renting and hold no-housing wealth have less than the £8,838 needed for even a 5% deposit for a mortgage on an average first home. It's easy to see then how home ownership has come to seem an almost impossible aspiration for many, leaving some with little choice but to continue in the growing private rental sector. The proportion of households in the private rented sector has increased markedly in the last two decades rising from 9% of households in 2006 to 17% in 2016, while the proportion of owner-occupiers has fallen from 67% to 63% across the same period. Is that a problem? Well, after all, it's not unusual elsewhere in Europe for ownership rates to be as low as 50%, with half the country renting. The short answer is that it very much depends on the sort of deal those renters are getting, not just in terms of affordability, But also the length and stability of their contract and other rights and services they can expect to be afforded by their landlords. These things play a psychological role as well as a practical one in helping to determine how settled and happy renters feel with their tenancies, how much a rented place can feel like home. It seems very valid, though, to question the idealism we might have about it being necessarily desirable and preferable to be a homeowner rather than a renter. And that's a question I'm going to come back to in another podcast. Again, the role of different rental sectors and the state of play with tenancy arrangements are important things I'll be discussing in time. For now, let's get back to the big picture. On the surface of things, demand for housing has increased since the 1980s, but house building has not kept pace, especially in London. Between 2001 and 2010, an average of 144,000 new homes were completed every year. 100,000 fewer per year than in the 1970s. The National Audit Office reported in 2017 that house building by the public sector had fallen and the number of homes added by the private sector has been vulnerable to both economic recessions and the cost of finance to potential homeowners. Why did I say on the surface of things just then? Well, because there's a lot of disagreement about housing demand and the number of houses we should be building. The government is aiming to boost the number of new homes by 1 million across the period 2015 to 2020, and in a 2017 budget pledged to build 300,000 homes a year by the mid-2020s. Analysis by the University of Cambridge's Centre for Housing and Planning Research has concluded that the net housing stock needs to increase by 240 to 250,000 per year in order to meet projected demand. The National Housing Federation which represents Britain's housing associations, has called for 340,000 new homes a year. Yet Ian Mulhern, a former treasury economist who now consults for the firm Oxford Economics, predicts we only need 170,000 per year in the coming years. He argues that the other estimates are too high because they use old models for population growth, which have since been revised downwards, and because they've overprojected the extent to which households will continue to get smaller and thus create a need for more homes to cater for the population. On the back of this analysis, journalist Matthew Paris declared in The Spectator that there is no housing crisis. What he meant by that is that there's no shortage of housing, not that there's no problem with affordability. This leads us to an important definitional point. The term housing crisis is clearly used by different people to refer to quite different things. Some talk about a crisis of house building Others of affordability, and some cast a still wider net to encompass all the key issues implicated in housing provision, because affordability has important knock on effects. The housing charity Shelter has outlined four key components of what it sees as the current housing crisis. 1. Home ownership is becoming more difficult to attain. It cites the fact that home ownership fell in the last decade for the first time since census records began, together with the large gap between incomes and house prices. 2. Housing costs are high. It explains that many have only become homeowners by taking out risky mortgage loans that stretch them to their financial limit. 3. More families are renting from private landlords. It cites the figure of more than 9 million in private rented accommodation and this is problematic, it claims, because a third of private rented homes in England fail to meet the decent home standard set by the government and renting can be incredibly unstable with soaring rents, hidden fees, and eviction a constant worry, it claims. Four, homelessness levels are rising. The ultimate impact of the housing crisis, Shelter explains, is that more people are being forced out of their homes altogether. There are other factors we might bring into the mix. Shelter mentions there the poor standard of many private rentals, but quality issues don't just affect that sector. The existing stock of housing in the UK is, on average, much older than in OECD countries with similar standards of living, such as the US or Switzerland, and partly as a consequence of this, is of worse quality. In 2014, 20% of UK homes were considered by the government to be non-decent, although this marked a reduction from 35% in 2006. When we build new houses, they tend to be significantly smaller than comparable European counterparts. Germany has got a similar population density to Britain, but its new houses are 38% bigger, while new houses in the more densely populated Netherlands are 40% bigger than in Britain. It's also really important to keep in mind those regional differences. Official statistics note that while housing affordability has worsened significantly in 69 local authorities in England and Wales over the last five years, over three quarters of those were in London, the South East and the East think tank The Centre for London argues that housing costs are affecting the fortunes of Londoners and increasing disparities in income and wealth. It's outlined three key factors. One, rising housing costs undermine living standards by eroding disposable incomes. Two, rising housing costs increase wealth disparities as owners see the value of their assets boosted while others struggle to get on the housing ladder. And three, London's poverty map is reversing. Inner London in the past had higher rates of poverty than outer London. Now, rapidly rising house prices in the city centre mean it's less and less affordable for people on low incomes, with the result being that their movement to outer London has increased the poverty rates there. So, to use the Centre for London's term, it's been suburbanising poverty. Does any of this have any upsides? Of course, some property owners who bought at the right time have made windfall gains in the value of their assets, yet even there the picture is muddied by relatively high rates of homeowner poverty, as we'll explore in another podcast. Some have claimed that house price increases are good for the economy because they boost consumption, but researchers indicated that's not actually the case. Professor Nibohiro Kiyotaki and colleagues of Princeton University conducted a study that showed that the wealth effect of house prices on average consumption in the economy is negligible because the positive spending effect of the net house sellers is largely offset by the negative wealth effect of the net house buyers of the present population. So does what we're seeing amount to a crisis? The big issue was written, the UK is embroiled in a housing crisis and you're unlikely to find an expert who disagrees. Actually, as we've seen, that depends on what we're referring to as a housing crisis. But this is clearly just a definitional model. What is certainly evident is that we have a big problem with affordability, and that in turn is having negative impacts on many livelihoods. Where the disagreement comes in is around the questions of quite why that's happening and what the country needs to do about it. Those questions will be the foci of the rest of this podcast series. Join me next time here on the Perspectives on Policy podcast to get stuck into what's going on with Britain's housing market. Bye for now.